Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast of the session Crusaders Against Corruption, featuring Gianrico Carofilio, Kate McClymont and Roman Quadvalig in conversation with Matthew Condon, recorded live at the 2019 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Thank you. So, welcome to Crusaders Against Corruption. Sounds like a Marvel film, but it's not. Uh, We've got some wonderful guests. Um, To my immediate left is the wonderful Gianrico uh, Carofiglio. I was never acquainted with his work until this festival, and I've been reading his extraordinary novel, The Cold Summer, uh, and uh, I was thrilled to learn a few minutes ago that um, Text will also be publishing more of his work from next year. Um, It's fantastic stuff. He has been described as a crime writer's crime writer. Uh, His novels have sold millions of copies in his home country of Italy and around the world. And in another life, Gianrico worked for many years as a prosecutor who specialized in organized crime and was appointed advisor to the anti-mafia committee in the Italian parliament in 2007. He also served as senator from 2008 to 2013. And his book, which we will discuss, The Cold Summer, is based on true events. So please welcome Gianrico. I'll skip to the end to the wonderful Kate McClymont. I'm trying to make Roman nervous because it's his first ever festival. Not, I'm, I'm only kidding, Roman. <laughs> Kate is one of uh, the finest investigative journalists of her, or, <clears throat> excuse me, or any generation. Uh, and works for the Sydney Morning Herald. She has won several Walkley Awards, had the Press Freedom Medal bestowed upon her, and her face has appeared on the backs of buses promoting the great journalism of the Herald. Her book... (laughs) Her book on the murder of Michael McGurk, Dead Man Walking, is due next month. Pre-orders are being taken in the bookshop. And um, Roman Quadflieg started his career in law enforcement as a Queensland police officer on the streets of Brisbane alongside another former Sunshine State copper, Peter Dutton. (laughs) But later... (laughs) Later transferred to the Australian Federal Police where he rapidly rose through the ranks before joining the Australian Customs and Border Protection Service. In 2015, Roman became the inaugural commissioner of the Australian Border Force. And uh, was, <laughs> just Quite hold your please. horses. <laughs> he has a lot of fascinating things to say. And was uh, controversially dismissed from that position uh, in 2018, and we'll discuss that. Uh, his memoir, Tour de Force, also pre-orders in the bookshop, uh, will be published next month. Um, it's going to be a fascinating read, Roman, it really is. Uh, it's sort of a heavy topic, this, um, on the surface, so I'd like to kick off with two quotes about corruption uh, from two world-class comedians. The first is from the great Peter Ustinov, who said, corruption is nature's way of restoring our faith in democracy. (laughs) And the second is from that other thigh-slapping funster, Vladimir Putin, (laughs) who said, those who fight corruption should be clean themselves. So I'm asking the panel, Are you clean? (laughs) Well, I showered this morning. (laughs) (laughs) I 
That is one thing I think it is a good point. And I am always worried that someone is trying to set me up. Like um, when people send in information or emails, at the back of your mind is always, can I believe this? Is it true? Because so many people would really love you to come unstuck um, publishing something that is obviously false. So I always keep that in the back of my mind anyway. Matt, um, the yeah, definition of corruption, um, yeah, we're all bound by the black and white letter of statutory articles and legislation and policy and descriptions of what corruption is. And if you look globally at corruption, a behaviour in one part of the world which is described as a facilitation payment and it's just part of doing business um, in Australia is corruption. Um, so uh, I think in the context of whether someone believes that they're corrupt or not, the, the value assessment comes from the inside. It's from your own set of values and your own integrity and... Um, you know, I start my book out by talking about being a very young, literally a young person, 20 years of age as a constable in the Queensland Police Service, getting thrown onto the streets of Fortitude Valley immediately prior to the commencement of the Cheryl Inquiry, which cut a, a cancer of corruption out of the Queensland Police Force, as it was at the time. Um, and the things I saw in those first months before that Royal Commission came through and... Uh, pushed a broom through that corruption, uh, set my standards in terms of what I was going to do in my career for, for, for the next 30 years. You have talked about my last book that is uh, called, uh, Summer, called Summer, mm -hmm. but uh, the previous one that I think is in the bookshop, uh, the title is A Fine Line, is exactly about uh, corruption and uh, precisely about uh, judicial corruption. And I think that uh, you can find some, I hope, interesting pages about how one person, a normal one, in this case a judge, becomes corrupt. You don't become a corrupted person from one day to another. You don't become a bad guy from one day to another. It is like a slippery path. One day you accept a little favor, nothing really wrong, uh, one day you think that uh, because you are a powerful person, a judge or an important cop or a politician, you can, uh, for example, uh, accept a present, uh, not a big one. And then you think that uh, if you accept a present, a big one, you are not hurting anybody because uh, you have to do that thing anyway. And so if they give you something, why not? And this slippery, slippery path. And when you you are in the in the hell, you really don't know that you are there. And this is the story of uh, this judge in uh, the novel A Fine Line. The story is uh, I have in this book uh, one of my main characters that characters that is a defense attorney. His name is Guido Guerrieri, and his client is a judge that is accused of corruption. And uh, I don't want to spoil. Nothing, but uh, he tried to explain some of his behaviors exactly like this. What did I do wrong? 
uh, at the end of the fair, I just helped somebody or I did what I had to do and accepted something. This, I think this is the most interesting issue when we talk about corruption in, in civilized country, of course, where corruption is corruption. Accepting, accepting bribes is not uh, uh, hoiling, but is a crime. But the most interesting issue is how a person becomes a corrupt person, a normal one. Everybody is at risk. Let's talk about the word crusader. Do you see yourselves as crusaders or is it the wrong word? I mean, you've prosecuted the mafia. You've taken on drug dealers. You've, you've had imprisoned um, the, the subject of many of your investigations. Uh, this is not day, the day-to-day work of ordinary people. I, I don't see it as um, crusading. To me, that sounds as though you have taken a position on something and you are forcing something to an obvious conclusion, whereas I find that um, your role as a journalist is to expose the wrongdoing and then all you can hope is that law enforcement will take up that exposure. But I just think crusading to me just has a slightly um, unpleasant <laughs> taste. Um, I, I agree. I think it's um, quite a chaotic term, a tilting at windmills type uh, uh, description. And I, I think it is a it is a sliding scale. When I, I mentioned when I was a young constable walking on the streets of Fortitude Valley and seeing uh, what I eventually came to know was corruption. I didn't recognise the, the behaviours for what it was at the time. Um, the, my response was all about myself. Like, how am I going to protect myself in this crucible of misbehaviour and corruption? I, I don't want to be part of it. If I don't become part of it, I get excommunicated by the, the thin blue line that was involved in that, and that's a very dangerous thing to do out on the street because you want to be able to rely on your colleagues in a bad scrape. Um, I could have succumbed and become part of it, um, and, but, but the slippery slope uh, phenomenon is, is very real. Um, you can participate a little bit in corruption, but you know, where is the threshold? Do you, are you fully corrupt once you cross that line or is it at the point where you get to right to the end of the spectrum where you're actually taking large payments of money for doing corrupt things? Um, or at the time, I was thinking, well, do I leave? Do I leave the police service? Because I just can't exist with all of this behaviour around me. But it's not what I wanted to do either. I wanted to stay in the police service. It's what I'd chosen to do. I really enjoyed the work. So it was a real dilemma. And uh, I, I was in no way, shape or form a crusader against corruption. But those experiences really cemented in me a, a, uh, a mindset that... Corruption can affect not just institutions and reputations of institutions, uh, public trust and confidence in, in government authorities, but the very individuals that work within them. It's a very human thing. And uh, for the remainder of my career, I try to do things where where I saw misbehaviour or corruption. There were various events uh, to try and do something about that for, for the people as much as the institutions. Can I just say one thing? Um, I'm interested to hear you say that because I remember covering the um, Royal Commission into Police Corruption in Sydney and this young constable gave evidence that his very first day in the police force, his mates took him to a brothel, 
sat a girl on his lap, plied him with alcohol, and he said that he just didn't have the strength of character to get up. You know, he wanted to fit in. And I think he ended up in jail in the end. Like, it was was all downhill from there. But I think it takes a certain kind of character to actually um, not be part of that group mentality that that's what everyone else is doing, so that's what I'm going to do. I might just respond to that, if, if that's OK. I'll just yes. pick up on that. Um, so the point I make is that let's take the police forces because that's a really good example. Um, anyone that graduates out of a police college or a police academy is malleable. Um, more often than not, it's largely because they're young but it's also because they're new. So it may well be an older, a mature person that's graduated through an academy. You go into a, into a, a uniformed, structured, disciplined uh, environment where there's a, an expectation that you contribute to the team, that uh, you look after your mates. Uh, there's, a, there's a collegiality that is encouraged and advocated and indeed it becomes part of your performance assessment. And when... There are behaviours that are not quite endemic but certainly accepted uh, and the pressure is not just implicit to become involved in those, it's explicit. I, I didn't drink at the time I joined the Queensland Police Force. So I didn't, in fact, I didn't drink too much later in life. But the alcohol culture or subculture within policing at the time, this is 1986, was it was endemic and uh, that subculture was used to put a lot of pressure on young constables, uh, male and female. We didn't have as many females um, at the time. The intake was two per squad of 24. Um, we're doing a little bit better now, but not, not as well as I would like. Um, and every single shift, there was pressure to go um, for drinks before the, ship, before the shift started, during the shift, after the shift. Hey. To do, to do all sorts of things, um, as Kate mentioned, go to strip clubs um, and go visit brothels, not necessarily to engage in sexual activity, but just to hang with the, the workers and have drinks at the back and get to know everyone. And the constant pressure to get involved in activities that would ultimately compromise you if you undertook those activities, because that's what it's all about. And where the small number of people, including me, said, look, I... I don't drink. I'm not interested. I just want to go out and write tickets or arrest people. And sorry, but that, that was I was a young constable. I'd, I just wanted to get my figures up and, and you know, be the commissioner one day. <laughs> that ended well. That worked well, didn't it? <laughs> um, and so I didn't. I said, no, no, look, um, and I, I made excuses at first to say, oh, look, um, I'm doing a double shift. I, I, I need the money, so I'm doing some traffic duties later on, so I, I don't want to have a drink. Um, you know, when they said, look, we're going to go in, into this brothel for half an hour, I said, yeah, look, I just want to watch this new street walker down here. Um, she's doing some stuff. I haven't seen her before. I just want to see what she gets up to. Sooner or later, you run out of excuses. And uh, they start looking at you and saying, hey, mate, I know you don't drink. You know, you can't trust a bloke that doesn't drink. Um, you know, you're you one of the toe cutters. And toe cutters was a derogatory term for internal investigations um, and... They didn't run undercover agents at that stage, but that was the sort of pressure you ended up getting. And quite explicitly, uh, I was told uh, at almost the end point where I was saying, I, I just don't want to be involved in this stuff. 
listen, buddy, one day you're going to be screaming into that radio asking for help and there's going to be no one there because no one trusts you. And, and that's the kind of pressure that you get in a corrupt, not necessarily corrupt, so there was certainly corruption uh, both uh, in a systemic sense, as we saw with uh, the Terry Lewis and the, and the joke, there was uh, certainly corruption in an individual sense because it wasn't all orchestrated and coordinated and there was certainly a whole range of misbehaviours. But the, the, the enormous pressure to get involved in some sort of misbehaviour so you compromise yourself in a collegiate way with your, mm. with your colleagues was, was, was enormous. Mm. Well, first of all, we can say that we know something new. Uh, in movies, uh, they don't tell the truth. Uh, when you know cops that say, no, I can't drink, I'm on duty, it's not true. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm not very comfortable with the word crusade or fighter against corruption or organized crime for, um, a, how can I say, theoretical reason. Uh, talking about fight, talking about a crusade, means legitimate somebody else. That means the adversary, the enemy. But we, I mean cops, prosecutors, uh, civil servants, uh, are not fighting because they are not enemies, because they are criminals and we are uh, uh, cops and prosecutors and our job is to catch criminals, to investigate, to try them uh, under the rule of the law, of course, and uh, try to uh, have conviction convictions for them. And so this is the reason why I, I don't love the word, generally speaking, but uh, there is this uh, specific reason why I say, let's not talk about fighting organized crime. Let's not talk about fighting corruption because uh, the um, very idea of fight includes an idea of legitimation of uh, somebody else that shouldn't be legitimate from my point of view. Mm, very good point. Roman, you were talking earlier when you were 20 about um, calling upon uh, like a moral compass that you have developed. Um, I'm interested from all of you uh, in terms of where, where this all, this, this social conscience, this moral compass all began for you. I mean, Kate, you were brought up on a farm. Were you out playing in the farm thinking one day I'll bring down bad guys? <laughs> no. I mean, where, no. where did this all come from? No, I, I think um, as often happens in life, it's sort of it's happenstance. Um, I didn't actually particularly dream of being a journalist. Um, but once I was one, I found that doing the longer investigations really interested in me. But I can remember one of um, our chief of staff saying, you are the least likely person <laughs> to do the things that you do. I didn't ever go out drinking with cops <laughs> or do any of those kind of things. But um, I just find that that, you know, that the very fact that you can actually do something to either change things or expose people or hold people to account is just, you know, a fantastic reason to keep going. And, you know, I just think too that in your, your own moral compass, your, your own ethical standard is something that helps you in the long run. If You know, even criminals... If I give them my word I won't do something or I won't write something, I always keep my word. And I think that in the end, you know, all you have is your good name. 
So, and it's just so vitally important that you you yourself act ethically if you're writing about people who don't. So it's something that you always have to keep in the back of your mind. You you were a junior reporter, were you not, for Four Corners when they were, Chris Masters was putting the Moonlight State together, is that Correct. right? Correct. What was the impact of that like on you as a young journalist? Oh, look, I started work at Four Corners as a researcher um, a couple of weeks before the Moonlight State went to air. And I, sort of like most people in Australia, could not believe the amount of corruption in the Queensland police. And I actually thought that I'd died and gone to heaven seeing this program. <laughs> no, it was just sort of like showing what really good investigative journalism can do. And, you know, the thing about that story was that Chris Masters, the journalist, paid an enormous price for that. He was sued for, I think it went on for 16 years by um, one of the, the families involved. It went all the way to the High Court. And he later said if he'd known that was going to happen, he calls it death by a thousand courts, and he said he would never have done the program. And I think that um, much... I, I would rather get a death threat than get another white envelope with a defamation action because, you know, fighting defamation actions against people is just so exhausting and tiring and truth is no defence. Very encouraging, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, my story is a bit more embarrassing. I, I, um, I was a 12-year-old kid living in Holland. My parents are Dutch and very peripatetic. They moved around the world quite a lot. I was actually born in uh, Toronto in Canada, which is uh, relevant to this story, but um, I got my hands on a uh, like an animated boy's own cartoon book about the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the RCMP, and, uh, you know, the motto, the Mountie always gets their man. So I, I read this uh, story about this one RCMP trooper on horseback who trekked through the wilds of, uh, of northwestern Canada and through the blizzards and ended up catching this, um, you know, this fugitive. And I was quite inspired by that story. I thought, yeah, that's really cool. I want to, I want to be one of those guys. And I started reading a lot of those books and uh, the heroes were always, uh, you know, the Ubermensch and had, um, you know, they were moral heroes and were super talented. And I'd go out riding my bike to school in the morning in the, in the, in the cold winters of Holland and take my gloves and jacket off because I wasn't suffering enough. You know, I just really <laughs> wanted to, like, I wanted to be that RCMP, you know, horseman. So... I thought, yeah, I'm going to join the cops and um, you know, I wrote off to the RCMP commissioner as a 12-year-old, so yeah, yeah, I want to p apply for this job. And he said, yeah, that's fine, come back to me when you're 20. Like, okay, <laughs> fine. But we'd moved to Australia by that time and so fast forward eight years and here's the reality, this is the stark contrast of the reality of always getting their man. So, And it's picking up um, Kate's story about the Moonlight State. So uh, this was pre-Fitzgerald um, inquiry being announced by Bill Gunn. Um, I was a uniformed cop walking around the beat in the valley and uh, at the time the, the vice squad, as it was known, was the licensing squad in Queensland and occasionally when there was uh, a little bit of pressure from journalists in the main about licensed premises brothels and you know, the, the, the mushrooming of all this seed, seediness and sordidness in the valley, they'd go about and do something, a bit of a show show set raids and Chris Masters and others had written quite a few articles in the lead up to that point, start to 
uh, stir up some public interest that there might be something going on. So the licensing squad uh, rings up the Fortitude Valley Police Station, a lovely two-storey brick place uh, on Brook Street, just on the periphery of Bowen Hills and, and, and Fortitude Valley, and said, look, we need uh, a dozen or so uniformed guys to throw an outer cordon around this place that we're going to raid a little bit later on tonight. It's a, it's a brothel and we just need an outer cordon in case people run and they need to be sort of restrained, etc. And the premises was a place called Bubbles Bathhouse. <laughs> right? Bubbles Bathhouse was this iconic uh, brothel, uh, come bar where a lot of the luminaries of the Brisbane underworld used to uh, uh, frequent, but is also frequented by uh, cops on and off duty, <laughs> not working. And um, so at the designated time of 9pm or whatever it was, uh, we all made our way discreetly to Bubbles Bathhouse. My role was to um, walk down this back road to stand at the back staircases of three or four slight, um, flights of stairs. Um, and my job was to catch any cockroaches that ran out when the licensing squad went through the front door. So, so I turned up in my, uh, you know, my squeaky uniform, my leather belt, utility belt was still squeaking because it was that new, it was a little shiny. And I, I'm standing there waiting and I heard the noise of the licensing squad doing the, the raid or the entry at the front because there's always lots of noise and lots of screaming police and as the doors are kicked open there's um, women screaming and men howling and... It, what happens is these raids is like the first 60 seconds is pandemonium and then it sort of peters out and, you know, the things have settled down and everything's under control. And, and at that point when the things go quiet is normally when the cockroaches scurry. And absolutely right on cue, the back door gets flung open right on the top landing, it bangs against the, the wall. And down the stairs comes this gaggle of men and uh, I'll describe them and you'll know exactly uh, what they were. So they're wearing the homogenous trousers, the polyester short sleeve shirts, thin leather ties, outline of a notebook and cheap pens in their pockets, right? <laughs> so I'm standing there on my Pat Malone sort of looking at this group going, okay, like, I'm not stupid, they're cops. Uh, are they working? Are they not working? So I, uh, I go about my duties and I, I boldly strode forward and put up the... <laughs> and uh, stop. And um, the lead guy says to me, uh, de detective son, out of the way. So he starts reaching for his badge and I'm, okay. So I step back and start waving them on because, you know, what am I going to do? They're, they're detectives. And as they walk past me, uh, a couple of them sort of look me in the eye and they gave me that bit of a guilty look and I think, oh, yeah, I know what you've been up to. But as it turns out, there was a guy in the, in the middle of the gaggle who was uh, rather overweight quite significantly and uh, he obviously wasn't a cop and he was doing up his pants at his belt as he was walking past. And I'm looking at him thinking, you're the bloody police minister. <laughs> so he wasn't the man I was going to get. <laughs> was that Russ Hint? It was. <laughs> that would have been I... a big belt. <laughs> it was a huge belt. <laughs> I can remember once... Um... Go. I was assigned duties when I was a young reporter. I was the society chronicler for the Eastern Herald. This is when the Sydney Morning Herald had an outpost. I had to write about cocktail parties and the like and I got really bored with it. So I said, oh, you know, let's do some more interesting things like 
going to the the uh, greyhound races on a Wednesday night. So I took myself off and there was this enormous chap with the black slicked back hair and the suit. The fashion stakes at the time were all the women were wearing velour track suits <laughs> and the men were wearing their flannelettes and their, you know, tracky dacks and there was a man in a suit and I followed him and everything that he bet on won. So I started following him. <laughs> it was Bucket, Rex Buckets Jackson, the, uh, the corrective services minister who later went to jail as well for um, early release of prisoners. But Jen, uh, Frank, oh, Jen Cullo, it's was, it was what you were saying. It's that, that first, like the fact that he was prepared to be involved in what was obviously the fixing of Wednesday night dish lickers. <laughs> it, it, you sort of think there's always, it's never the thing that they're caught for. There's always a lengthy pattern of behaviour yeah. leading up to that yeah. point. You should know that... Um Bubbles is currently a French steakhouse. It is, really. <laughs> um, and there's a there's a neon sign above the bar that says serving serving meat here since 1984. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It is true. Sorry, it's been a problem. He's like, what the hell's going on? He's wondering. No problem. <laughs> Perfectly fine. Thank you. <laughs> Jenrico, I wanted to ask you about the mafia. Yeah. We have we know the mafia from Hollywood. Yeah. What is the the true picture of the mafia from your experience? There's only one movie where you can find the real thing and it is uh, Goodfellas. The other movies are just movies. I mean, uh, especially a very good movie from other points of view like The Goodfather doesn't talk about the real world. It talks about a fairy tale, a dark fairy tale, but uh, real things don't work like this. And the, the, the underworld, the criminal world, especially the organized crime world, it's really, you know, when you see movies, you usually see a glamorized version of what the criminal life is. But the real world is without glamour, is full of if you excuse my excuse my French, is shit and blood, mm. and uh, and uh, always you don't find uh, uh, nobility, you don't find uh, rules. Yesterday we were talking about um, uh, this topic too, and um, I was asked to, to talk about what mafia guys, mobsters, say when they are interviewed and especially when they become justice cooperators. In our legislation, uh, there's a very important part that's about uh, um, criminals, uh, organized crime. Criminals, uh, mobsters that decide to uh, cooperate with justice. They receive benefits, uh, uh, discounts of uh, penalties and many other things, they can change their names, like in the, I don't know if you have something like this in this country, yeah. but uh, uh, when, when we interview them, the first time after the choice of cooperating with justice, we always, I don't do that job anymore, but uh, it's always the same, they always say the same thing. 
I decided to cooperate because uh, uh, the mafia is not the same anymore. When I joined, it was a, a noble association. We had rules. Uh, uh, we respected women. Uh, we didn't kill uh, if we uh, didn't have a, a good reason. I don't know a good reason to kill, but this is another problem. And uh, all of them. But now things have changed, and, uh, and, and so I am a, a man of honor, and, and so I want to change my life, not because I'm a traitor, but because I'm the same as I was when I decided, blah, 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 blah. That, of course, it's uh, all excuses, because uh, uh, there is no such thing like old mafia, like a good thing with rules uh, and respect uh, and... Uh, things like this. It's always the same French thing I was talking about before. Uh, but uh, this is very interesting from psychological point of view, because uh, when you have to work on a criminal to persuade him or her, rarely, to uh, decide to cooperate, you have to give him a way of escape, a psychological way of escape. And this thing works. I know I, many times I uh, had to say things like this, talking with them when they were thinking about uh, the decision of corporate. And they said, I know that you are a serious guy. You, you were a criminal, but I know that you had rules and now things have changed and it's time for you to decide to cooperate with us because those guys are really, really bad guys and blah, blah. It's not true. But you have to do that because they, they you have to deal with the, your self-image. It's not so easy to say from one day to another, uh, okay, I was a filthy criminal, <laughs> I slaughtered people, and uh, I did that uh, just for the sake of money and power. You like the idea of depicting yourself like, uh, okay, yes, a criminal, but a criminal with rules, uh, with a structure, uh, with principles. And it's not so easy to deal with the idea from one day to another that you were not this, but just a filthy criminal. <laughs> and uh, um, Talking about, generally speaking, about uh, uh, the Italian mafias, because we don't have we don't have just one. We are lucky people. <laughs> uh, we have four, at least four. And uh, the most famous one is uh, the so-called Cosa Nostra, that is the Sicilian one, and uh, that used to be the most powerful crime organization in the world in the past, but I have new for you, uh, something that uh, usually is not told. They have been defeated. They are not the same anymore. All the bosses are in prison or they were in prison and now they are dead. We have just one of the uh, important bosses that is uh, still a fugitive. All the others are in prison. We have uh, when I say we, I mean we, the public forces. Uh, we have uh, tried and pr prosecuted, convicted thousands of these people. And uh, if it was a battle, and I said that I don't like this word, but just to be clear, we won this battle. 
And the worst mistake that they did was uh, where the slaughters of uh, judges Falcone and Borsellino, I talk about this in my novel, they are the set of the story that is in another region, because at that moment began the end of the Sicilian Cosa Nostra. Then we have the, uh, the Neapolitan Camorra, that's it's dangerous, but it's not, has never been so powerful. They are mostly uh, very dangerous gangsters. And then we have uh, the Apulian, the, my region. I, in this novel, I talk about the birth of this uh, so-called new mafia and the fight. Again, I don't like the word blah, 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 but against them. And uh, the book is fiction, but it is completely based on real events, uh, mostly real events uh, that I had to deal with when I was a prosecutor. There are parts of the book that are really taken from real life. And then we have the most dangerous one, the so-called Ndrangheta, that is the Calabrian one. They have the strongest connection at the moment all over the world. And they have connections also here in your country. This has been found. And uh, at the moment, they are the most dangerous for several reasons. If we add two or three hours, I could explain <laughs> why. But uh, I want to say, uh, to close this long speech on the, this topic, uh, something that is very important for me and probably is the reason why I have written this specific book. We won the battle. This is something that you don't know. This is something, when, when I go talking in Italy on, or in other European countries, people don't know. Everybody think, thinks that the mafia or the mafias are invincible. They are al almighty. They think this. They think that we poor guys, prosecutors and cops are there trying to do something, but they are untouchables. This is not true. They are perfectly touchable. And in fact, we touch them very, very hardly. <laughs> and, um, um, thank you. This book is uh, dedicated to all the people, men, women, some of them died for this, that uh, have been fighting and still fight. And I contradict myself again, using this word and winning this difficult war also against the wrong information about this topic. This doesn't mean that it is easy or it's all over, but uh, I want to make it clear that it's a battle that uh, we can will, uh, win and we, we are winning it. Fantastic. Uh, Roman, I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of police officers in my career. And they all share one thought, that, that every police officer has at least one skeleton in their closet. So two questions. <laughs> what is Peter Dutton's and what's yours? <laughs> well, um, I was listening carefully to your introduction about me working alongside Peter Dutton in the Queensland Police Service. And um, so let me put it out there. I, I actually didn't know Peter Dutton at all uh, when he and I were serving together in the Queensland Police 
The first time I ever met him was uh, when he became Minister for Immigration and Border Protection. He's currently now the Minister for Home Affairs, but um, I don't really know much about him, to be, to be perfectly frank. Uh, I work with him daily, on a daily basis, when he was the Minister for Immigration and Border Protection on operational matters. Um, I found him uh, deferential to enforcement officials. Um, I had expected something very different from Peter Dutton. Ex-cops are the worst ministers normally. They think they know everything. So, you know, there, there are many cases of uh, you know, senior constables or those who've reached the lofty rank of sergeant who then find their way into politics, become a minister of police and, you know, think they, uh, they're still a commissioner and want to run the police force. And I, I didn't find him like that at all. Um, so I, I, I'm afraid to disappoint, but I, I actually can't tell you what uh, Peter Dutton's skeletons are. I've heard lots of rumours. Um, Please share. It's fine. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this, um, there's this thing in, in the intelligence uh, world where uh, a piece of information that comes in gets a grading um, and the grading is applied by analysts as best they can and it goes to the reliability, the veracity, uh, the confidence in the source. And so at the top end of the, of the grading, intelligence is A1. So if you get an A1 piece of intelligence, you know you can rely on that pretty pretty solidly to get warrants or do certain things and the, the bottom grade is F6. So. You know, um, as much as cops work with information and intelligence, most of the police rooms are F6. They're really bad talking about <laughs> their own. So I, I don't sort of take too much notice or put too much stock in what I hear um, in and around the sort of the policing circles. As, um, as you well know, having talked talk to hundreds of them, they talk as much nonsense, if not more, than <laughs> most, of the, most of the community. Um, gee, skeletons in the closet for me. Wow. Where, where do I start? Um, <laughs> Uh, Sounds like a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah really, yeah. Let me let me pick up on the let me pick up on the last theme. Uh, uh, no, let's G not. G G no, 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 no. It's a, it's a, it's an interesting one because uh, you know, uh, as a cop, you tend to get indoctrinated um, and take a very antithetic stance towards criminals and the way they behave. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very us-and-them adversarial. The cops are always the bad guys and, you know, they're scum of the earth and I'm going to lock them up. And um, I had an occasion once where I had a bit of empathy in, <laughs> in that particular world. So uh, we're talking about Italian mafia and uh, I went undercover through the uh, vehicle of an informant so there was a guy who had um, seen the light. Uh, he converted to Christianity, but he hadn't been involved in some pretty bad stuff in the past. And one of the things that he'd been involved in was as a fixer, uh, a runner, uh, an enabler, uh, an odd job man for Italian organised crime in Australia. There's a couple of seats of uh, IOC, I won't call them Mafia, I call them Italian Organised Crime in Australia, and uh, those seats are down in the Murrumbidgee Immigration Area, or Griffith and Leeton, um, and the other is up in North Queensland around Ingham, Cairns, etc. And this informant introduced me into an Italian Organised Crime group who were from Calabria, it was a Calabrian-based Calabrian group, uh, 
extended family um, in the main, but also some business associates. And their business at the time was growing large-scale marijuana crops. A lot of the Italian organised crime has moved out of that because of the risk. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a big time cycle with growing cannabis crops and there's a lot of risk because the crop is static and people have got to sit on it and they've got to harvest it and they've got to sell it. Uh, most of the Italian organised crime now has moved into uh, what I call the powder drug trade, methamphetamine, MDMA, etc. But this was mid-90s, so they were still running big, large cannabis cultivations. The informant introduced me to a guy called Dominic, and Dominic was a, a patriarch of a Calabrian family in um, Leeton. And uh, he had scoped out a rural property at St George and the way they get into these properties to grow their crops is very much like Giancarlo mentioned before. They get the bite on someone, uh, a struggling farmer who is desperate, the bank's about to foreclose on him, he's going to lose his property and he lets the mafia in once to grow a small crop and they have them on the hook forever and they just keep coming back and that was the case with this particular guy. So. I met with the informant at the Toowoomba Transit Centre and Dom drove up from Sydney and we met for the first time there. I jumped, he, Dom jumped into my car, we left his car there and we drove out to St George, which is um, between Toowoomba and St George. It's a number of hours drive. The surveillance teams got left behind. I could see them dropping off because it was just too remote and it was becoming quite obvious. My car was wired up, which is great, so the conversation was captured. And Dom was telling me about the business of Italian organised crime. And he told me that he was part of the council of Doms that had sat around to discuss whether to knock off Donald Mackay, who was a anti-Grass Castles, anti-Italian organised crime crusader and who ultimately disappeared, uh, believed to be assassinated uh, by, by the mafia. Dom told me that uh, he had counselled against the other people that were at the meeting not to kill Donald McKay because, not because of any compassionate sense, but because he felt that that would draw the crabs, as he called it. He didn't want to draw the cops to, uh, to what was then a very lucrative business. And as it turned out, he was right because that particular targeted assassination uh, brought a lot of police and enforcement and indeed political attention on uh, the grass castles and the wealth that was accumulated through large crops in the MIA. Now, you would think from that story, like, Dom is a bad man, but uh, I went out to a property with him. We, uh, we tilled the soil, we laid the pipes, we planted the seedlings, we grew a 6,000-plant um, cannabis crop out at St George. Uh, we ran another one out at Barcall and... Um, almost simultaneously, they overlapped. And I worked with them for quite a while. And over that time, I actually uh, got to know him quite well and I very much liked him. So in the past, doing undercover work, I was always able to fake that empathy and that, af that affinity with bikies or drug dealers. But with him, it was very easy because he was a... It's hard to say, but he was an old-school guy that... Uh, had strong family values, had a really strong work ethic. Um, 
<laughs> he was a, an astute businessman. Um, he was loyal. Uh, he knew me as Alex, uh, some struggling guy from you know, living on the Gold Coast with a couple of kids in a rental house. And he said, look, when we grow this crop, you'll get this and you'll be able to buy your own house and just move on there and we'll grow wealth. And, and um, he almost adopted this sort of paternal attitude towards me. And so when the job went down, as they call it, it got closed down, um, I went down to uh, Leeton. Uh, I looked a bit different than I had a beard and long hair and earrings and stuff. So I was kept out of sight for a while. And Dom was in the room, in the interview room, and the detectives were talking to him saying, right, so we want to talk to you about this crop you're growing in Queensland. He said, I haven't been there for 20 years. And they said, well, um, we'd like to introduce you to somebody, um, Detective Sergeant Raymond Quadley. So cue me. I walk in, hi, yeah. hi Dom, <laughs> how you doing? Um, and, you know, the, the, the spirit deflated out of him. He was quite shaken by that. Um, and I walked out. And in, in the book, I actually say I felt like I was Roman Judas, not Roman Quadvig. I, I felt like I had betrayed him. But knowing also um, quite clearly in my mind the moral compass being right, well, despite the fact that I actually liked him as a person and we had a good friendship, uh, he had committed these offences and therefore that was my job. The postscript, though, the postscript was something that has stuck with me for a long time, is that um, when he eventually got sentenced to about nine years' jail, um, he reached out from jail and there was one thing he wanted to know and that was, you know that relationship that we had, was that real or was that fake? So I was, I was really pleased to set the record straight but I guess that's my skeleton in the closet, empathy for a criminal. <laughs> Fantastic story, Roman. <laughs> Not sure you answered my question, but I asked it was, it, so, it was a deflection. I asked it so long ago, I can't remember what it was, so it doesn't really matter. But, um, um, Kate, I wanted to talk to you desperately about Michael McGurk and Ron Medic and your book, Dead Man Walking. Um, can't wait to read it. McGurk rang you the night before he was murdered, did he not? It was, it was actually the week before. The week. Uh, yes, and he said, um, you know, I just don't think you understand um, who we're dealing with there, this here, you know, Ron Medic has got a hit out on me. He's going to have me killed. And much to my eternal embarrassment, I just thought, oh, these people, honestly, they'll tell you anything to, um, to get you to do their stories. And, you know, I remember so clearly um, he was killed at 6.30pm on a Thursday night in front of his nine-year-old son. And I remember at 7 o'clock the news desk rang me and said, there's a guy called Michael McGurk who's been murdered. And I honestly felt like vomiting. I just thought, oh. Anyway, funnily enough, um, you know, sometime later, um, this was when Ron Medich was facing his murder trial, one of my other criminal contacts who just got out of a long time in jail rang me and said, um, there's a contract in jail for the murder of Lucky Gatilari who was the only person who could give evidence against um, Ron Medich. He told me who had the hit. And so this time I actually rang the police and said, um, look, I, I, I don't know whether it was A1. I don't know whether I would be <laughs> A1. Maybe I'd be C19. <laughs> but anyway, so at least this time I did ring and, um, and report it. Question? Can I just ask Roman a question? Yes, of course. I want to, what, no, I want to know what Roman thinks about um, the federal police raids on the um, the two <laughs> the two journalist organisations. Yeah. So um, 
The AFP, so let's assume for a minute that we've got a, an objective, clinical, independent, autonomous Australian Federal Police for a minute. <laughs> suspend, suspend your disbelief if, if you don't believe it. Let, let's presume that for a moment. It's a, it's a very uh, uh, difficult position for the Australian Federal Police to be in when it receives a, what they call a referral. So someone makes a complaint to them that there's been a breach of the Commonwealth law. So, and one of the AFPs, one of the primary jobs that the AFP has is to enforce Commonwealth law um, legislated by the Parliament. Um, the AFP has this process where they call it an assessment. So when a referral is made, it doesn't immediately become an investigation. They conduct what they call an assessment, which essentially looks at, well, is there actually a prima facie value a Commonwealth offence that's being committed? Um, is there a prospect of um, evidence being garnered to prove that offence? Um, and is there sufficient uh, seriousness to the complaint stacked up against all the other things that the AFP does because it does have an enormous workload. When it receives a referral, um, let's say, for example, the Annika Smethurst article and the uh, replication of the top secret Australian eyes only document that was published on the front page of the Daily Telly, I think it was. Yeah. I think it was Daily Telegraph. Um, if you're the AFP commissioner and you get that referred to you by a defence secretary, quite a senior, quite a senior person in the, in the Commonwealth bureaucracy, uh, prima facie value, there is a document which is classified. So there's a there's a there's a, a structured uh, system of classification, and the law says that uh, anyone who discloses leaks, whatever word you want to use, this document commits an offence against this particular law. At prima facie value, there is evidence that that has been disclosed because it's actually published on the front page of a newspaper. So the AFP is in a very difficult position there to say, no, we're not investigating because that's its job. That's its legislated, its constitutional job. But Kate and I were discussing this in advance of, the, of this, this session and uh, my point was if you assume that the AFP is then back into a, into a corner and is obligated under constitution, under legislation, under its statute to conduct an investigation, at least a preliminary investigation, uh, that's one thing. But how you then go about doing that is another. And in my view, you know, this is going to be quite controversial and I'm sure it's going to, I'm going to see this repeated at some point down the track. But in my view, uh, <laughs> thank you. And I, I know Miss Karen Middleton over there paying very, very close attention as well. Hello, Karen. <laughs> In my view, uh, you don't do it by conducting uh, what appears to be quite a, uh, a heavy-handed raid a significant period of time after the referral was made at a point where it looks like you delayed that action until after an election. And to me, that is an error of judgment in terms of the way the, the, the particular operation was executed. But then you exacerbate it by coupling on a second investigation or a second raid on the ABC, and in fact, there was a third one in place. Now, if you look at it from a, from a practitioner perspective, 
and you don't take into consideration uh, the all the political, uh, the media and the public dynamics, it might make sense to say, right, we've got a number of uh, warrants that we need to do here to conclude these investigations. Let's just do them all as a bundle. Like stupidity, right? That, that, that is just like absolute <coughs> gross and, and, error and, of judgment. And it just um, sealed the very powerful ABC with News Corp, like normally they're antagonists. And to throw them both together battling the AFP was an absolute monumental error of timing. Well, talking about timing, um, oh. <laughs> I have one final question for Roman, and it's either a yes or a no answer, please, Roman. When the ministers and the members of parliament lent on you to facilitate the high rollers, did you do as they wished? I can't give you a yes or no answer. Um, and I'll try and make it, I'll try and make it short. Um, what was edited out of that particular interview was the consequent point I made was that every single day in state and Commonwealth governments, constituents make approaches through local members and or ministers directly or indirectly to get things done. It's a normal part of representative democracy. And the fact that uh, Representations were made by Crown Casino to ministers or their local members to have arrangements smoothed out for the arrival of VIP jets is not illegal, it's not even improper. The point I was making was that does Crown have more power to make those representations and to have a response from elected members of government than, say, Joe Blow down the street, well, the answer is yes. Very good. Roman and Kate, can't wait for your books. Gianrico, wonderful. They'll be at the writer's tent right now. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Mitis Festival 2019. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronmitisfestival.com.